Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gabriel. No, I'm not going to do it like no, that. Welcome back to the Leaving <laughs> Eden Podcast. My name is Gabriel Hakoen, and I am here with my radiant co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, and we are here to try to solve a very perplexing mystery. Is it the curious case of Benjamin Button? Is it the case of who keeps filling my recycling bins up with trash the night before pickup? No, neither is it the mystery of who in my apartment building likes to neglect to set a timer for their laundry and leaves their laundry in the washing machine for hours so that other people either have to wait or dump their laundry out on top of the machine like we're all living in college dorms again. Sadie, I just want to say... That I relish every shared experience that we had during college. And laundry room disorganization is absolutely one of these shared experiences. And in time, 
We will reveal to you what this mystery is because today we are here to talk about Sadie's life in the IFB cult, the Independent Fundamental Baptist cult. We are here to educate and to inform our listeners about this cult and the danger that this cult and other cults pose to society as a whole and to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So Sadie... Would you like to tell the fine people what mystery it is that we are going to solve today? So way back when we were researching for the very first episode of the First Family of Fundamentalism series. Jack Hiles, First Family of Fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. I wanted to pull an audio clip from one of Jack Hiles' sermons to illustrate for our listeners what a typical Hiles sermon would sound like. So I believe that the sermon that we chose was, uh, or that you suggested was uh, Sunday's Coming. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I know that it was because I had to listen to it like six or 11 times, you know, in order to get the right Mm -hmm. part of it. Yeah. That's correct. But my first choice for the sermon I wanted to play was not Sunday's Coming. It wasn't. No. The one that I wanted to play was another one of the Jack Hiles Greatest Hits collections uh, and it is a sermon called Duty. Uh, now, at the... T- did you just... Duty. <laughs> I thought you... Yeah. Duty. <laughs> uh, at the time... At the time, I was not able to find a recording of this sermon that would fit into the episode. So we used that clip from Sunday's Coming instead. So what was it in Duty that you thought would be perfect to illustrate? So duty is a sermon where Hiles, he would repeat the word duty over and over again. There was a lot of yelling in it. Wait, so what word would he repeat? You know, you own the sound clips of me saying everything. So he'd repeat the word duty. Duty, like over and (laughs) over again. Jesus, how old are you? Ten. I peaked in fourth grade. Okay, so I I would like to point out if you've ever heard me give my theories on uh, men and and women and people who mature differently from others, we are the same age. We are like 90 days different in age. That's true. Literally. But not in heart. (laughs) Apparently. So you didn't grow up with Captain Underpants. I did. And this is what worldly media will do to your children. (laughs) (laughs) look you don't have to be a genius to laugh at a poop joke but you have to be an idiot not to and that's all i'm gonna say on the matter so duty is a sermon where hiles would repeat the word (laughs) duty over and over again he would say that to go soul winning to be in church to give to the church was your duty But while I couldn't find an audio version of the sermon to put into the episode, I did find a text version. And this was way back at the beginning of the pandemic when I had a lot of time on my hands. So while I was reading through the text of this sermon, I saw a story about a man that Hiles called Paul Sand. So what happens to Paul Sand? So this is a fairly involved story. But the details are important. So according to Hiles, this story took place when he was the pastor of Miller Road Baptist Church in Garland, Texas, 
which was the last church that he pastored before he moved to Hammond. And of course, this is the same church that Dave Hiles ended up at 30 years down the road. But that's a sordid story that we've covered before. So this would have been in the 1950s. Yes. Specifically, this story would have had to take place between 1952, when Hiles took the pastorate there in Garden Garland, and 1959, when he moved to First Baptist Church of Hammond. So there's only a seven-year span in which this could have taken place. So... Hiles says that at that church one day, a man and his wife visited. The man was very tall and very handsome. Hiles said that the man was at least six foot two, and his wife was very short, very petite, very beautiful. A a really striking couple. Uh, Hiles says the man's name was Paul Sand, but he does not give his wife a name. Paul worked at the phone company. And he and his wife lived further down on the same road as the church, so on Miller Road. And Heil said that the, the that the Sands would drive by the church and see all the cars outside every Sunday morning, and they wanted to stop in and see what it was all about. So on that first Sunday morning when they visited, they both got saved. On Sunday night, they both got baptized, and they joined Miller Road Baptist Church. Okay. So what happens next to Paul Sand and Mrs. Sand, who is... Uh given no real name. So the Sands become very involved with the church very quickly. Both of them even become Sunday school teachers. And Hiles is really proud of his model church members, Mr. and Mrs. Sand. But soon enough, they start to miss church sometimes on Wednesday nights. As time passed, they even began to skip Sunday night church occasionally. And eventually, after much time has passed in this process of them becoming less and less involved in church, Mr. Paul Sand ended up in Jack Hiles' office handing over his Sunday school attendance book. And he said that he wanted to resign his Sunday school class and not teach it anymore. Hiles told Paul Sand that he was backslidden, that he was not right with God, and that he should not resign his Sunday school class, but instead he should go back to the way that it used to be. He should go back to being the model church member who was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night for soul winning and all the other activities. But Paul Sand was over it. Hiles predicted that this would have a bad outcome, but Paul Sand was determined and he walked away from the church. So here Hiles cuts to over 20 years later. So 20 years later. Yes, and his exact words are over 20 years, and that's going to be important in a minute here. So over 20 years later, Hiles got a letter from Paul Sand, and that letter was from a Texas state penitentiary. This letter from the penitentiary says something along the lines of, You may or may not remember me, but my name is Paul Sand. My wife and I were church members at Miller Road Baptist Church. And then this letter takes a wild turn. So I'm going to quote from the text of Hiles' sermon here. This is what Hiles says the letter said. A few weeks ago, I caught my wife making love to another man in the parking lot of a shopping center. I got in my car and drove home and got the gun out of the closet and I murdered the other man and I murdered my wife. Whoa! Yeah, so this is like, all of a sudden, hey, you may or may not remember me. I used to be your church member. I murdered my wife. So Sand goes on to say that he will be serving a life sentence and that it all started the day that he went against what Hiles said and resigned his Sunday school class. 
So it is a slippery slope. You stop being a Sunday school teacher today, and in a few short decades, your wife is cheating on you, and you're out here committing double homicides. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, or or I don't know. Maybe you go against Jack Hyle's wishes and like defy what he tells you to do, and in a few decades, your wife is cheating on you, and you're committing a double homicide. So we saw this story, um, and I mean, this is a powerful story. So we decided to investigate. <laughs> Again, this was like way back in like the early pandemic when like I had a sourdough starter on my counter. Oh, man, I remember those days. Yeah, mm. this was like way early pandemic. Yeah, so we like we had a lot of time on our hands. By the way, this sermon. So this story. This is what you would call a sermon illustration. An illustration, which is otherwise known as the IFB child's favorite part of any sermon because they get to hear a story, is any story, whether it is presented as fictional or non-fictional, that is used to help make a preacher's point. And we know that scripture scripture is like full of these sorts of illustrations, like stories, you know, parables, if you will. Right. In the New Testament, Jesus uh, was especially fond of using parables to make his point, and he used that as a device many, many times. But in this instance, Jack Hiles is presenting this story as a true, like, thing, like true events that actually happened. Exactly. Now, there are many of these stories that are passed around that lots of IFB preachers use regularly. Even in a preaching class at Hiles Anderson, for example, you might be given a list of here are good stories to use in your sermons. There are literal entire books out there of stories that are good to use in sermons. But these stories are pretty obviously allegorical. They're not meant to be literal, just like Jesus's parables are, it is clear that he is using a a poetic device. <clears throat> but it's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, though. No, not at all. I mean, Jesus did it. As long as you're not pretending that it's true. Yeah. Right. Like, But like most of these stories, there there are clear verbal cues that clue you in to whether it is meant to be literal or not. So if I said, a priest, a rabbi, and an IFB evangelist walk into a bar... No one would think that I was talking about something that really happened. Because no IFB evangelist would walk into a bar, would they? Right. But no, like that's a that's a common joke setup. And no reasonable person would believe that I was talking about three literal people or a real bar. Like no one would go asking me what city the bar was in. And a lot of these common sermon illustrations are like that. It will start with verbal cues that clue you into the idea that this is not literal clues like a soldier in world war ii or a sailor on a whaling ship or there was once a very wicked man there is a way to start that 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 is agreed upon in english and in storytelling that you start a story that makes it clear to everyone that is not intended to be a retelling of actual events what hiles is doing here is something very different. He does not give us any of these clues that he is talking about a fictional event or even talking about an exaggeration of reality. Instead, he does the exact opposite of that. He says he's in this, like, this is a thing that happened to me, some guy that I know. Right. 
like he includes all of these details like this is a man that i knew and this is how i felt about him and this is my opinion on how cute his wife was uh and this is where his house was and this is where he worked at the phone company and these are the exact details of the murder so if you remember back to the first episode that we ever did uh there was a story about a man who went against his who went against his pastor and then got in a car crash and his brains flew out and his pastor happened to be driving, happened to be driving by and saw the crash before anybody else stopped, scooped up the man's brains and put them in formaldehyde. <laughs> yeah. And we used still the, don't know where he got the formaldehyde. And use that as like a scare tactic to try to keep people from going against him. But like there are thousands of car crash deaths every year. Right. Thousands yeah. of car. Cra- it's like the leading. Ca- it's like one of the leading causes of fatalities in in the country um is is uh, car is car accidents um so it would have been impossible for us to verify however there are significantly fewer murders in this country than there were car crashes and when somebody is murdered it usually makes the news and when somebody is convicted of murder it definitely makes the news so we decided that we wanted to investigate. We, yeah, th- we, we thought this might be something that we could find because this is just one of many times that Hiles would claim that someone went against him and then extreme harm came to them. But this one is unique because he gave us just so many details to work with and it is completely undeniable. So someone who's a Hiles apologist, there is no way to say that he was intending the listener to take this uh, as a, a fictional story. It is completely 100% clear that he meant us to believe that this literally happened. And then he gave us all of these juicy details right on top of that. So this was the perfect scenario for two amateur internet detectives cooped up inside in quarantine with laptops. Yeah, so Sadie here, Sadie has a monocle and a deerstalker hat. And I have a Ferrari and a mustache. So we are both PIs now. Um, (laughs) So here we are. We are ready to take on the mystery of Paul Sand. So Sadie. Yes. Where is our jumping off point? Where are we starting with this mystery? So I started with the very naive idea that I would just be able to find the answer to this. Like it would take me an hour uh, that was not true. <laughs> no, that was not true. That was nine months ago. Um, one of the first things that I dug up was a tool from the Texas Tribune. It's an online tool that allows you to search for any person who is currently in any Texas penitentiary. These are truly marvelous times that we are living in. I agree. So right off the bat, I want to say how cool it was that we were able to access so much information and investigate as much as we did with just the internet. According to that tool from the Texas Tribune, there are no current inmates in the state of Texas by the name of Paul Sand. So what that tells us is that if this guy existed and if his name was really Paul Sand, that he is no longer living now. So no pulse. So Paul Sand has not recently been in prison in the state of Texas. Correct. And I mentioned doubting the name first. 
Because I cannot tell you how many countless times I've heard Hiles and every other IFB preacher ever say something like, uh, his name wasn't really Paul Sand, but I'll use that name for this sermon. Right. But also like saying, oh, his name wasn't really this, but this is the name I'm using. Like, that's another thing where he's saying this is a true story that actually happened. So he 100 percent wants us to think this is a real story. So although Hiles didn't say that in his original sermon, I thought it would be best to give him the benefit of the doubt. He definitely presented this story as true. But I still think I I want to give him the benefit of the doubt everywhere that we reasonably can. So I'm going to give him that maybe he changed the name and he didn't mention it. So maybe Paul Sand was never the guy's name to begin with. But anyway, regardless of whether it was or wasn't, there is not currently a prisoner by that name. And of course, so say Paul Sand had been a young man in the 1950s, then we he would have been born in the 1920s or the 1930s, meaning that he would currently be in his 80s or 90s if he were still alive. Right. So we are assuming that he was a contemporary of Hiles, who was born in the 1920s and, of course, is long dead. So that narrows our search down a good bit. Um Because we know that we're either looking for somebody who is dead or somebody who was never named Paul Sand to begin with. Or while he was convicted in the state of Texas, he may have been part of the federal prison system and has been locked up somewhere that isn't in Texas. Right. But the letter says that he was in Texas State Pen. Like Heil said that the letter came from a Texas state facility. Okay. Well, just as a matter of thoroughness, I tried to find any records that I could of a man named Paul Sand in the federal penitentiary system for a double homicide, and I came up with nothing. So in the interest of narrowing this down further, I thought I would do some math. Hiles was only the pastor at Miller Road Baptist Church for seven years. If this sermon at the Bill Rice Ranch, which is the one that we have the written transcription of, uh, and I can prove that, but I'll get to that later again. Uh, The sermon at the Bill Rice Ranch is the one that we have the text of, and it was 20 years after the fact, then the sermon would have to be preached um, between roughly like 1982 and 1989. Uh, this does line up, oh, wait, no, that would be 1972 and 1979, wouldn't it? Because 52 to 59. Anyway, yeah. this does like, like the, the mid seventies that lines up with a time period that it would be likely for Hiles to be preaching at the Bill Rice Ranch. Um, this, this makes sense. You know, when you, when you're in math class as a kid and they tell you, well, first check if the answer is plausible. Yeah. This is plausible. Now the letter says that a few weeks ago is when the murder was committed. And this was one of our first really big red flags that something is not 100% correct with this story. Right. Because I I don't know if any of you are familiar with how the justice system works or has worked. Um, But I have seen every episode of Law & Order, which ran for 20 seasons, and every season had hour-long episodes. So I think that comes out to something like 16 full days of television, like 16 24-hour days of television. Anyway... Yeah, if you know about the justice system as well as I do from having seen it on TV, then 
you know that if even if you arrest somebody and you've got them dead to rights, it takes months to get a conviction and it can even be years before sentencing. So if we assume that Mr. Sand shot his wife and her lover and then drove himself directly to the nearest police station with the murder weapon in his hand and confessed and turned himself in, a few weeks is still nowhere near a realistic timeline for him to be put in jail. Yeah. At this point, he would have been indicted and he would have been arraigned but they would be nowhere near sentencing him, even if he enters a guilty plea. So we decided uh, once again to give Hiles as much wiggle room on this as we could. Uh, so we assumed that Mr. Sand wrote that he was tried and sentenced a few weeks ago. Um, so maybe the event, so something a little more plausible, the event that happened a few weeks ago was maybe him being sentenced and taken away to the penitentiary. Or maybe he's been indicted, he's in jail, and he's talking with his lawyer about pleading guilty, you know, taking a plea deal to avoid the chair. Right. So if the letter is written between 1972 and 1979, we're thinking of a crime that happened between like 1971 and 1978, maybe. Yeah. And then we're also looking for a man who was born no later than 1939 um, to be at least 20 when he knew Hiles, but realistically, he is probably born... Uh, more in the 20s or the very early 30s. Yeah. I mean, you know, this whole story seems like it should be a Johnny Cash song. It's a wild story for sure. Yeah. So the next thing we were able to do was narrow down the timeline a little bit more. So my awesome friend Hannah, hi Hannah, was able to track down the exact date that duty was preached at the Bill Rice Ranch. This was a huge breakthrough. She found contemporary news articles that pinpointed the date to Friday, June 9th, 1978, which was the 25th anniversary of the Bill Rice Ranch. So that narrows our time frame down quite a bit. Yes. So we don't have to look, you know, in the 80s or the 90s at all for this double homicide. Like it would have to be before June of 1978. And it could be any time between... You know, 1971 and 1978. I wish that I had known this before we started looking into this. It no would kidding. have saved me so much time. No, I, I couldn't yeah. agree more. So, like, when we started looking, we had our math wasn't as refined, and we were thinking that it could have happened any time between, like, 1972 and 1990. Um, so we were, we were looking at two additional – or at least an additional decade of murder that we didn't need to. Yeah. So, Ugh. yeah. So, Sadie, Sadie Locke Holmes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, okay, now we have a, a general date range for this alleged murder. Is there a resource or a database that we can use to find details of murders committed within the United States? There, so there is a database. Um, let me tell you, I was so pumped to get to use this database myself after hearing so many true crime podcasts that I like that use this as a source. Um, so the website is called Murderpedia. And it's not the easiest to filter, but we were able to look at every murder in Texas and we could put it in chronological order and then manually check out and read about every murder by year. Um, because you can't filter by like, double homicide or you can't filter like you can search by name but we don't know for sure if paul sand is the guy's name right 
So we started with Murderpedia, and we started with that before Hannah found an exact date for us. So I'm pretty sure between the two of us, we manually read about hundreds of murders. Like every murder in the state of Texas between 1970 and 1995. Yeah. And let me tell you guys, like, this site is really, really depressing. Like, there is a lot of combination rape and murders. Yeah. And especially in Texas, what I saw was that there were a lot of black men sentenced to death for murders committed under extremely dubious circumstances who went to their deaths proclaiming their innocence. Yeah, that was not fun to read. Yeah, I was like, I mean, you'd read something and be like, oh, this guy's probably innocent. Right, you're like, oh, this guy got because you know Texas. Yeah, and Texas is like super known for the death penalty uh, at this during this historical era, and you're like, oh, that guy might have been killed for something he didn't do. That's just great. He was probably yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I you know. Well, a lot of that is what we found on um, Murderpedia. Yeah. And we spent so many hours on this depressing website reading about terrible things. Um, But we were not able to turn up a single case of a love triangle double homicide with any name that fit the other details of the story. Yeah. So even if the guy's name wasn't Paul Sand, it was something completely different. There, I couldn't find anything where a guy found his wife with another man in the back of a car and shot both of them. Yeah, even if he changed the details of the story, like, oh, it happened in a different town. Oh, it happened uh, in a different uh, I couldn't find anything city. in the state of Texas. No, yeah, we tried. We looked all over. So it kind of felt like we were hitting a dead end. But that is when I finally found the audio version of the sermon, which had more details. Oh, joy. So this audio version, I tried really hard. I wasn't able to find the exact date that the audio version was preached. Uh, I know it was some years later than the 1978 version, most likely. Um, especially based on the sound of Heil's voice. Uh, he mentions Union Steel. So I think it's pretty likely that this audio version came from a church service at First Baptist Church of Hammond in the 80s or 90s. Okay. Yeah, and we're going to play that clip for you right now so you can hear it. It's passed to the Miller Road Baptist Church. Our church is right across the street from a shopping center. We use the parking lot of that shopping center for our parking. Every Sunday morning, I went out on the front steps of the church and shook hands with everybody. Some of you folks used to come down those up those steps. Some of my converts there at Miller Road are here now. And I'd shake hands with everybody who came in across that parking lot. One day, one of the finest looking couples you'd ever want to see came across that street, that parking lot, shopping center lot. I'm not going to call him by name. I'm just going to call him Bob Tate. That was not his name, and you'll know why in a few minutes. I'm not using his name. I walked out and I said, my name is Jack Hiles. Are you folks new here? He said, yes. My name is Bob Tate. This is my wife, Mrs. Tate. He was a handsome fellow. To make it short, he wore, he was a dapper dresser. Clothes fit just perfectly. Tall, good-looking, well-built fellow. And she was as cute as he was good-looking. 
She was about four foot ten, cute as a bug. I've never seen a cute bug, but that's a statement we use, isn't that? Cute as could be. I said, Mr. Tate, are you new in town? Yes, he said. Where do you work? He said, I work at a telephone company. I've been transferred to the office, to this office here, telephone company. Wife and I drive by your church every morning on the way to work. We thought we'd come by to visit you. Man, I'm glad to see you. Now, those, they, they were such a nice-looking couple. If they walked in right there right now, walked right across that aisle, everybody in this house would look at them and say, Man, what a nice-looking couple they are. Just cute as could be. That morning, Bob Tate and Mrs. Tate sat over here and walked down that aisle and got saved. That night they got baptized, and they became model Christians. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every Monday night for soul winning, they were there in their places, model people. He taught, I think, a junior boys class, and I think she taught a primary girls class. Always there, never miss, tithe, everything the preacher said do, they did. Everything the preacher said don't do, they didn't do. Model people. One Sunday I looked back where they usually sat and I couldn't see them. One Wednesday night, rather. I asked my assistant pastor, I said, Brother Jim, do you see Bob Tate and Mrs. Tate? No. I don't think they're here, preacher. I can understand it. They're always here. They never miss. Oh, they came back the next Wednesday night. And the next, then miss one, then back two, then miss one, then back three. About where you are now. Now I want to make something clear. <clears throat> From this corner over here to this corner over here and all the way up here and all the way up here. If you are a member of a New Testament church, every time the hinges squeak, you're supposed to be inside those walls. The deacons in First Baptist Church of Hammond that aren't faithful to all the services are not right with God. Get no right to hold one of God's offices and lay out a church. If I'll resign a deacon board, how about resigning your backslidden condition first? Get to church. That goes for every Christian in this room. It's your duty. On Sunday night, I looked over and couldn't see Bob and Mrs. Tate. Jim, you see the tape? No, preacher, I don't think they're here. Oh, they're back the next Sunday night. And the next, then gone one, then back three, then gone one, then back two, then gone one, then back one, then gone one, then back two. About like you are. About like you are. And then one Sunday morning they were gone for a weekend trip. I hate weekend trips with passion. I don't believe in them. I think if you're going to go see your grandmother, you ought to go on Monday and Tuesday and get off work. Some of you Christian school teachers, stay out of church on Sunday so you have enough strength to teach your class on Monday. What you need to do is hit the mortar's bench on Sunday. Never has been a schoolroom as important as a church room. Never has been. But you say, for the house, when I go on a weekend trip, I always go visit another church. Try that where you work. <clears throat> if you work out in Steel, take off on a weekend trip. 
I mean, on Monday and Tuesday. Come back on Wednesday, and your boss says, where you been? I've been on a little trip down over in Ohio. <laughs> well, man, you got a job here. Well, then hold it now. I visited Youngstown, worked over there while I was over there. You think God's dumber than your boss? And then one day it happened. Bob Tate walked in my office, had his class record book with him. He said, Pastor, God's led me to resign my class. That he is always a lie. Unless God's called you to do something bigger, God's not called you to resign anything. And I said, Bob, you know better than that. Bob, you, you know you're backslidden. Why don't you get back where you used to be? Bob, why don't we kneel here and pray? And you get, Bob, you've been missing on Sunday night and Wednesday night and on Sunday morning. Now, Bob, why don't you get back where you used to be? Bob looked at me with that look. And brother, you can see it. Every preacher here sees it in the audience when it happens. Some of you folks have in your faces right now. Because right in your mind right now, you've got some negative thoughts about this preacher. And, brother, it is as obvious as a black man and a white man. You can tell it. Preachers can. He took his record book, came to my desk, tossed it there on the desk and walked out the door 23 years ago. A little over a year ago, I was opening my mail. A square envelope with one, two words. Upper left-hand corner, two words. Bob Tate. Bob Tate. Bob Tate. Yeah. Sure. Tall, good-looking guy worked at the telephone company. Hey, that cute little one. Bob Tate. I didn't know he knew I was alive. Man, I'm glad to hear from Bob Tate. Open the envelope. Pull it open. Open the letter to read it. Up in that left-hand corner, it said Bob Tate, Huntsville, Penitentiary, Huntsville, Texas. Bob Tate? Dear Brother Hyatt, you may not remember me. My name is Bob Tate. I was saved at Miller Road Baptist Church under your ministry. Wife and I taught Sunday school. You may not want to hear from me. For a few months ago, I caught my wife in the back seat of a car in the shopping center across from the high school football field, making love to the high school football coach. In a fit of temper, I got in our, my truck and drove home and got in our closet and got the gun out. And I killed that coach. And I murdered my wife. I'm serving, I guess, a life sentence in the Huntsville Penitentiary. I couldn't believe it. Could that handsome man murder that cute little wife? Oh. P.S. It all started the day I resigned 
I misunderstood the facts. What he could have said was this. It all started when it was no longer fun to teach it. On this side of this building over tonight, there are hundreds of people that one of these days are going to be in serious trouble because you already are at that place where you only do it if it's fun. And there are people before me right here and folks up in this great crowd up here. If you don't transfer your motivation for serving God from inspiration to obligation and duty, as sure as I'm standing behind this pulpit, you're going to be a casualty on the battlefield against the devil. Duty. 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 Duty! 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 So what new details are we focusing on here? So number one, Hiles gives us a different name. In this version, he calls the man Bob Tate. And my dad was able to confirm that when he heard Hiles preach duty at uh, First Baptist Church of Hammond, he used the name Bob Tate. So um, this could have been the recording that my dad was present for, or this could have been a different time that Hiles preached it at First Baptist Church of Hammond. Again, it's one of his greatest hits. Mm -hmm. They recycle the sermons. If it's, a, if it's a good one, then you recycle it. Yeah, one that was really famous like this, he would probably do at his home church in Hammond once every 10 years or so. And in this audio version, Hiles goes way out of his way to make it very clear that Bob Tate was not the man's real name. And so he, he, the other thing that he made it very clear about was how cute this man's wife was, like over and over and over again. <laughs> yes. Um, he did talk about that in the printed version as well, but I think he emphasized it a lot more on the audio version. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he kept talking about it. He's like, oh, there was an extreme height difference between these two. This man, he was over six feet and his wife was only four foot ten. Mm-hmm. Very fixated on those details, which was odd to me, but yeah, and he gives so many details in general, like he's so fixated, well, I guess he's done this sermon over and over he's done the sermon over and over again, so he knows how to really milk it out, right, but he's really fixated on these details, and this is one of the ones he keeps going back to, like even though so the height difference and the fact that he works for the phone company are things that come up over and over again. And those things have no bearing on the outcome of the story. And what this kind of reminded me of when I was listening to it, and um, sorry, if I, I'm, I'm so sorry if you haven't realized this yet. I, I think you probably already have. The way he speaks kind of reminds me of a certain orange man who used to be the president. Oh, yeah. Who is not anymore. But like the way that he repeats himself, like it's going to be great. It's going to be very great. It's going to be the greatest. He speaks more intentionally, though. He does. He doesn't sound as word vomity. But the way that he repeats himself is familiar to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's very plain spoken, but he has the same core audience. True. Much of the way that Hiles tells the story on the audio recording, though, is almost word for word the way that it was transcribed in the text version from years earlier. And this is typical for Hiles with these greatest hits sermons. He would often re-preach them and it would almost be word for word. This is kind of 
expected with your greatest hit sermons. And I wanted to make a really quick sidebar to say that this is why no one expected Scop to go off the rails with the polished shaft sermon. Everyone who was there expected Scop to always preach that sermon in almost exactly the same way, almost word for word. So it was a shock to people when Scott deviated from that norm, especially in such a lewd way. And I think that's a big part of why people didn't jump up and stop him from what he was doing. Yeah. So what if we gleaned from this? What new information can we take from this? So we've got a, a different name being used. But Heil specifically says that wasn't his real name. So that makes you wonder if Paul Sand was his real name. Yeah. Hiles also gives us the name of the penitentiary. And this was a little, like, the, the recording is almost garbled at that point. But I was able to cross-reference Hiles' recording with a list of penitentiaries in the state of Texas. And I found it. It's Huntsville State Penitentiary is where Hiles say, says that he was. And Huntsville is the nearest Texas state pen to Garland, Texas. So this does make sense with other details of the story. Okay, so that majorly narrows all of this down. It really does. Hiles has also amended himself to say a few months ago rather than a few weeks ago about when the crime was committed. But there's one other big new lead that we got to check out here. When Hiles is supposedly quoting from the letter, Bob Tate, a.k.a. Paul Sand, tells him that the man that his wife was having an affair with was the high school football coach and that the parking lot where he discovered them was a shopping center across the street from the high school football field. So naturally, Sadie and I took the new salacious details about this sordid murder and love affair and Googled everything to do with them. So we Googled high school murder, Texas. We Googled Football coach murder, Texas. We Googled football coach double murder, football coach affair parking lot, football coach murder parking lot, Texas car affair, and ever like literally everything, every combination of all of those words together. Yeah, and and you really took the point position on this new lead. Um, so this is Texas, so high school football is a big thing. So you were able to track down some of the more recent coaches of some of the major high schools in the area? Yes. Okay. So what I did was look up Garland, Texas high schools. I found all of the high schools in Garland, Texas. Then I eliminated all of the ones that opened after 1980 and combined that with the location data to figure out which high school he was most likely talking about. I was just really, really glad that you did this part of the investigation because this is right around the point where I started to lose faith. <laughs> this is the point where I realized that we might not be finding this murder. <laughs> yeah. So, like, we are nothing if not thorough. And I will tell you what I came up with. So, the high school that is closest to Miller Road Baptist Church in Garland, Texas, is also a high school that has been open for more than 100 years, and it is a high school that is well-known for its football team. And just like that, we're back in business. Um, 
if it's a well-known football team, I'm pretty sure if one of the coaches got murdered right across the street from the school, that that would be big news. So the high school in question is Garland High School, the oldest high school in the Garland Independent School District. They are well known for a rigorous academic program that includes both advanced placement and international baccalaureate programs. They also have a performing arts magnet program, and they are well known for their football team, the Garland Owls, who wear the colors yellow and black on game day. The Garland Owls. That's creative. I do enjoy a non-repetitive football team name. Yeah. Well, I mean, people often think of owls as soft, as friendly, as scholarly. But owls are serious predators who make use of their stealth to hunt their prey. Regardless, everything that I have read about Garland High School makes me think that it is a high-quality public school that continues to provide excellent education for this country's future leaders. I can agree based on what I'm seeing online. But enough suspense. Were you able to find any information on a coach that would have been murdered? Like even, okay, if if it was an assistant coach, surely. If a school staff member at all were shot just blocks from school property, that would have to be big news. Well, as you know, the people of the state of Texas take their high school football very seriously. So I looked up every piece of information that I could find on the Garland High School Owls football team. And what I found was very interesting. Please tell us. Okay. So thanks to meticulous record keeping, I was able to track down the Garland High School Owls football team's records from the 1970s. And here's where we really get into it. Okay. So in 1976, the Garland Owls had a 500 win record. They went 6-6 six and six over the course of the season. 77, the Garland Owls go 9-1 and one with a 900 win record. And in 1978, they topped off this run of dominance by going 11-1. That is a 9-17 win record. But, and here's the interesting part. In 1979, the Garland Owls only won once. They went from going 11 and 1 to going 1 and 9, down from a 9-17 win record to a 100 win record. So this says to me something happened here. So, like something's got to have happened to this team between the years 1978 and 1979 to make the once dominant Owls football team completely lose their momentum almost as if a central figure a coach if you will was taken away before his time holy shit. upon further investigation i have been unable to find any information as to why the team dropped off in its performance oh. however I did find on the Garland High School Sports Hall of Fame Facebook page a post from 2011 concerning a banquet honoring coaches and players for their dominance in the 1978 football season. And I believe that if a coach had been murdered as the result of an extramarital affair, maybe they wouldn't have had this banquet. I don't know. 
best as I can work out, the dominant 1978 football team's core was probably made up of seniors who graduated because in 80 and 81, the team had better than 500 win records, which suggests an upward trajectory in team development. How dare you? You really had us thinking that we found something. No, I found absolutely nothing. I mean, I feel like if a coach was murdered, they would have had like the, you know, Joe Smith Memorial Banquet. Unless, of course, he was murdered as the result of an extramarital affair. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they would have seen. This is Texas we're talking about. Yeah, but it was the 70s. I mean, it's the 70s. It's not the 50s. Like, maybe they would have seen him as, like, kind of innocent. Yeah, or maybe, you know, it was, like, the disco era. So, like, everybody. Yeah. No, No, this um, story is turning into absolutely nothing. Damn it. Um, So I did find an article along those same lines about a man named Joe Boring, and that is his real name. Uh, who was the coach for the Owls, and it doesn't give the actual years, but it says three years in the 1970s, and I think it implies that it's late 70s. Um, yeah. And he is very much still alive at the time of the writing of that article. So, Yeah, I mean, but also if they were going to uh, induct somebody into the the Hall of Fame, you know, for the the, the Texas uh, football hall of fame for high school football, then it would be, you know, their best seasons throughout the seventies. And those best seasons we didn't know were, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 77 or 70. Yeah. Whenever it was, it was 76. Right. So I think this guy, yeah. Joe boring must've been the coach then. Yeah. I mean, that would make perfect sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, the story is turning into absolutely nothing. Um, so, If you or anyone you know went to Garland High School in Garland, Texas in the late 1970s and knows what made the football team go from hero to zero between 78 and 79, please get in touch with us because we would love to talk. Also, if you happen to live in that area, if you can find uh, a set of Garland High School yearbooks from 1970 to 1980 so that we can figure out who was on the coaching staff during that time and research every single member of the coaching staff on Find a Grave, I will do that if anyone will send me the Garland High School yearbooks or pictures of them. <laughs> this story has eaten our lives. This story has eaten our <laughs> Okay. It's, I mean, it's time for us to take a break. Um, when we come back, we have – even more information as to why it is eaten. <laughs> Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Gavriel here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. 
That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden Podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. So we are back, and... I just want to say that I am coming to the conclusion that this heinous double murder, um, this heinous crime of double murder upon which Jack Hiles based in ser- based his sermon, uh, like it never happened. It, uh, it I mean, never we happened. looked so hard. We looked so hard for this. We really did. We, we really looked. did. <laughs> we looked. And I, fi- okay, I find it so funny because last week we had an episode about true crime, but this week, we had an episode about a crime that probably never happened. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> of course, because we believe that it never happened, we especially looked for proof that it never happened. So that means that we looked for places that Jack Hiles could have taken this story from as an inspiration. Yeah. And it's not possible to prove a negative. So we can't categorically prove once and for all that it never, ever happened. However, if we can show something that could have prompted someone to make up this story, that would add to our case about that it, the fact that it probably never happened. Yeah. So I had a theory, and it revolves around the name that Jack Hiles chose for his killer, the name Paul Sand. So, the first thing that Sadie and I did when we were going to look into this story was obviously Google the name Paul Sand. Now, if you Google Paul Sand, the first website that pops up with a result is IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, because Paul Sand is an actor. Not an actor that any of you would know by name is like a star, but a sort of a journeyman, a sort of guy who gets cast in bit parts throughout Hollywood and TV and in movies, um, who is especially prolific in television and film appearances in the 1970s and 1980s. Like this guy has been in everything. I mean, he must have had the hardest working agent in Hollywood. Yeah, this dude has been in Bewitched. He was on the Mary Tyler Moore show. He was on Laverne and Shirley. He just oh, kind of pops up everywhere as an actor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he would show up in Wonder Woman. Yeah, Laverne and Shirley. Uh, I mean, this got us to thinking, though, because, I mean, IFBs don't watch TV, right? Or they aren't supposed to watch TV. Yeah, especially not contemporary television. Like, some IFBs will be okay with older TV shows or older movies. But watching a lot of TV in general was considered a waste of time as well as something that would expose you to sinful images and sinful topics and put bad thoughts in your head. So it was highly discouraged. Yeah. But we also know that Jack Hiles is the type of guy who believes that the rules don't apply to him. So we were thinking, and this is like one of the more harebrained things that we've ever done, but we were thinking (laughs) maybe he gets the name Paul Sand from the credits of a TV show that he's watching because It seems like a mighty big coincidence that Paul Sand is a the name of I guess I wouldn't call it like a well-known actor, but like an actor 
whose work was pervasive and wide reaching. So that also got us to thinking that Jack Hiles like took this whole story about a double murder, like love triangle from a TV show. I think this theory must have just really resonated with you because you went to great lengths to see if this theory could potentially hold up. Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) on this show, we pride ourselves on always delivering accurate information, even if that accurate information is punctuated by wild speculation. We are nothing (laughs) if not thorough. So in the spirit of thoroughness, I took it upon myself to watch everything that Paul Sand has ever been in from his debut in 1964 up until 1987. I literally went to his IMDb page and went down the list and watched all of it. And I have some opinions. <laughs> I literally cannot believe that you did this. <laughs> but oh, since, I did it. Since you watched that much 70s, 60s and 70s TV and 80s TV, I think you were more than entitled to your opinions, whatever they are. So the first thing that I have to say um, is that all scripted television that came out before Seinfeld is automatically terrible. Zero exceptions. Seinfeld is the first ever funny scripted TV show. People now go back and watch Seinfeld and think that it isn't funny, but they haven't watched what TV was on before Seinfeld. They haven't watched what Seinfeld was up against. Like, I mean, you've still never seen Andy Griffith. So the second thing that I truly believe is that Paul Sand is a criminally underrated actor. I think that if things had gone maybe a little bit differently, he could have been like a beloved star, a sort of household name. I mean, he ends up kind of typecast as a guy who's a bit down on his luck but it's like a character that he plays very well and he's got this sort of natural comedic character to him like you know you can tell that he doesn't end up taking himself too seriously ever and he's kind of like a character actor but i find him relatable in most of the stuff that i've seen him in like i watched bewitched i watched him in wonder woman i watched his short-lived 1975 romantic comedy show that was called Paul Sand in Friends and Lovers, which he plays an unlucky in love concert violinist. Oh my. But I also, yeah, maybe it was, I mean, it, it wasn't great because it was TV in the seventies, but like it, it wasn't the worst thing I watched. Um, but I have, like, I have to say the worst thing that I had to watch was the love boat. Have you ever seen the love boat? I, I actually have not. I have heard other people reference it. I think there were musical acts on this show. Sadie, believe me when I say this show is f-ing terrible. I mean, like we talked like we talked about how food from the 70s was weird and gross. But have you ever seen TV from the 70s? Hmm. Like, I honestly think that Jack Hiles had a point when he said that television was from the devil. <laughs> Because, like, that was the TV. Like, we are so spoiled now. The worst show on TV now would have been an absolute banger in the 1970s. 
I have seen a lot of 50s TV. So like I Love Lucy, Leave it to Beaver, that kind of thing. But I haven't seen a lot of 70s TV. So I think I'll take your work, take your word for it. So. So. Unfortunately, yeah. After having watched the early half of Paul Sands filmography, I was unable to find any plot lines that resembled the story that Jack Hiles described despite the inclusion of several episodes of Magnum P.I. and Murder, she wrote. So where does that leave us? I'm leaning towards entirely fabricated. I mean, we can't ever prove that it didn't happen, but we also spent literally God only knows how many hours searching everywhere we could think of for even a shred of evidence that something similar might have happened once. And at this point, I really think if this murder had occurred, we would have found it. Like, we gave Hiles the benefit of the doubt wherever we could, but there is just no evidence of a love triangle double homicide involving a football coach in Garland, Texas in the 1970s. There just isn't. So if Jack Hiles is going to make up a story like this, what's his motivation? Well, we've talked about before many times about how an IFP pastor is considered to be speaking for God, how members are supposed to consult him on big purchases and financial decisions and just about every aspect of their lives. We've also talked about the brain in the jar story, the idea that to go against the pastor is to go against God. I think this story very clearly supports that concept. His words say, stop being a Sunday school teacher and your life will be ruined. But I think the deeper meaning he's trying to convey is go against Jack Hiles and your life will be ruined. So I definitely think that's one aspect of it. Um, but if we look at the ser- so we look at the sermon that the story lies in. The name of the sermon is Duty. Is it? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I I'm going to to compose myself. Up. Um, the thesis of this sermon is that it is your duty to go to church and that his and his words are if you are going to church because you like it for inspiration not obligation you're not truly a believer you're not right with god so i mean he so often compares going to church to a job he rants about how much he hates weekend trips he despises weekend trips because like you said uh, like a few episodes ago when we did our q and a that like if you go to church somewhere else you are not at church here it is your duty to be here like you are a soldier like if you are a steel worker and you go to another factory for two days of the week you can't come back to your job and say that you were there like he is reinforcing this idea that even if you don't enjoy going to church you have to be here and if you believe that god is calling you to be less involved in church that is a lie because god would never call somebody to be less involved he would only call somebody for greater involvement And this is obviously not a good way to think about church. I don't think that Christians are obligated to a certain amount of work or a certain amount of money or a certain amount of attendance. I think if a Christian feels that they are obligated to anything, it should be to the things that are actually commanded of us in the Bible. Um, Things like kindness, things like advocating for people who need help, things like generosity or even prayer, things that are actually commanded of us but not to these external things that don't help anyone. But second, I think that this is a perversion of the concept of duty overall. (laughs) I think 
for a lot of people who have depression or anxiety, certainly for myself, the idea of like there are certain things that I'm obligated to do, that is actually a helpful idea to me. It gets me through a lot of days. Even when I have a terrible mental health day, I know that I at least have to drink some water. You know, I know that there are some things that can slide and there are certain things that cannot slide and that just have to get done. And uh, I know that's not helpful for everybody who has mental health struggles, but for me, uh, kind of understanding the things that are absolute must do's and the things that are not uh, is it's a healthy concept for me <coughs> when I have more difficult days. And I think that presenting the concept of duty as doing all of these things for church can be really damaging to people who have mental health issues that make functioning difficult to begin with. Like if you have a mental health problem that makes it where it is difficult for you to clean your own house or shower and brush your teeth and put on clean clothes every day, if you're in that there, you know, lots of people have been there and, and you know, you just got to get therapy and, and do better, you know, feel better and he, yeah. get healed. But if you're in that mental health place where I have certainly been and so many other people have where literally getting out of bed is the hardest thing you can imagine, you do not need to be told that you have a duty to show up at church like five times that week and do all of that too. That is not going to help you. And in fact, it's very dangerous for people who are in that mental health space. Yeah. I think that's a great point, um, especially because this church doesn't believe that mental health exists. Um, but more than anything else, I think this sermon is really to guilt trip anybody who is even le considering leaving or lessening their involvement. Like, I mean, can we just talk for a minute, though, about how ridiculous this story is? I mean, like, so yeah, let's let, let's let's break yeah, this down. So first, we have a space of over 20 years between when this character, Paul Sand, leaves Jack Hiles Church and then unknown events occur. So Paul Sand leaves the church. Unknown events. 20 years later, his wife is having an affair with a high school football coach and he kills both of them. Then but like he leaves everything that's in between up to the imagination of the parishioners and that this man who sits in prison for murdering two people is sitting in a prison cell thinking to himself, man, I really should have never left that Sunday school job. I really should write a letter to that pastor. Like that's what, like what? No, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Yeah. And also like, how did he get, Heil's address because this isn't like he didn't have the internet in jail no like I mean I suppose you could look it up in a phone book you have all the time you're in jail you, you yeah, know he's in Texas how is he going to get an Indiana phone book like do you think the guards are going to get him an Indiana phone book or like run down this information for him I don't know I don't even know I... how you would get Jack Hiles' address if you were in jail in Texas in 1970-something. I don't and, know. Maybe he sent it to the church and the church forwarded it. Yeah, but where did he get the church address? Well, he, you know, he knew the address. He drove by it oh, every day. Oh, to Miller Road Baptist Church. Okay, now that would make sense. Yeah, since the, the, the letter to Miller Road Baptist Church addressed to Jack Hiles, the church looks at it. They're like, oh, here's a letter for Jack Hiles. Let's forward it to Indiana. Okay, that makes much more sense. 
But uh, but regardless of all that, I think it's so unlikely for a convicted murderer to think, you know what I should do is write to some dude that I knew 20 years ago and tell him that he was right about my life choices. Like, who does that? Nobody likes being told I told you so. Who would give someone else the opportunity to say I told you so? I don't know. And also, like, Hiles, you know, uh, you know, reportedly knows this guy who turned out to be a, a murderer. How uh, do you know if it's like how statistically likely is it for you to know a murderer? Like, do you know any murderers? Well, uh, first, I want to say there is a one hundred percent chance that Jack Hiles knows a murderer because his son is one. Um, okay, so statistically, how likely is it for him to know two murderers? I mean, I feel like if you know one murderer, then the chances are that you might know two. But 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 yeah, but this guy and Dave are not remotely connected. I don't know. I, okay, well, I mean, when I was a junior in college, there was a guy who was a year above me, and he ate a bunch of magic mushrooms and went to go see Interstellar, and then he freaked out and left the movie theater, and then he beat a guy to like he beat a guy to death later that Ooh. night. Yeah. I think they got him on manslaughter, though, not murder. Listen, listen, friends. Um, if you're going to choose to do psychedelic drugs, uh, set and setting where you are makes a big difference. Don't go to the movie theater by yourself. That's not a good idea. No, he went with friends. Uh, oh. And he like he left. He freaked out like halfway through the movie and left. Oh, see, they probably should have had his back. That's unfortunate. Anyway, like I know, I mean, I know one person who is a convicted murderer. Uh, someone I went to school with killed two people execution style in a gang initiation. Well, that's upsetting. Oh, yeah. This is the dude who used to threaten to kill me. So, no, this dude used to threaten to kill me in school every day when I was like eight and he was like 13. Um, he would like follow me around and threaten to kill me, and nobody took me seriously. <laughs> and then um, that guy ended up being in prison for murder by the time he was 21. Woo. So I kind of feel like I lucked out on that one. He dodged a bullet. Two bullets, technically. It's unfortunate. No, my point is, I don't think statistically most people know someone who is a murderer. Because I was writing my notes for this episode and I asked my husband and he doesn't know any murderers. I don't think, I don't think most people do. Out of my very small sample size. (laughs) But no, between um, I looked up some some stats between four and six out of every 100,000 people are murderers. I uh, that was probably a rabbit trail. But I think that is just one more layer of unlikeliness to this whole scenario. Like, who knows somebody who just killed somebody like that? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the sheer unlikeliness of this story, the most basic bit of like scrutiny, everything just immediately falls apart. Like, but that's also sort of the point. Like the point is that the IFB relies so heavily on brainwashing of its members. These pastors can make up literally any story they want to, and people will just believe it. Like people, people won't even question it. Um, it, it just doesn't matter. Like, for, like, so first of all, if you're hooking up in a car, you want to go somewhere like more secret and like secluded than the car park of a shopping center that's in the middle of town in the middle of the day when the stores are open like you want to go like out of town side street somewhere dark people won't see you and then like what are the chances that this guy happens to go to the grocery store at the same time as his wife is in the car park with this other man and that he decides to drive all the way home get his gun drive all the way back and they are still there. Right.
Right. Like if you're going, to, if you were going to, goodness gracious, you're going to do this. Why would you be that close to your house? No. Number one. Number two, if this happens over 20 years into a marriage, you're talking about people who are between 40 and 50, most likely. Like no matter how short this woman is, no one that age wants to hook up in a car to begin with. Like. No, no no one over the age of 23 wants to hook up in a car. Right. And and like, why would people who are trying not to get caught having a marriage ending affair be hooking up in any parking lot, even one that wasn't like five minutes from your house? No, you go to like a cheap motel on the outskirts of town. Right. People, people who are, people who are that old have houses or money for hotels or like, I don't know, adjoining IFB. Well, if you're IFB, you have adjoining offices in your church with barely camouflaged doors. Oh. Ew. Yeah. But still, even if you were having an ill-advised, really, really stupid hookup in a shopping center parking lot, why on earth would you be there long enough for someone to see you go home, get the gun, and come all the way back? Were they like a block away from the house? Yeah, like, no, that's where they were supposed to be. They were, like, in the shopping center car park, and they're like, he lives down the road. Like, literally just down the road. Uh, that's... I mean, I, if why? You're, why? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to cheat, you have to plan that sh- Like, you have to make sure that you're at a place where no one's going to see you. You've got to go to the other side of town or, like, go to a different town. But also, I want to—I just wanted to point out here that these are 1970s cars that we are talking about, so they've got the big bench seat in the back. Um, much true. different, yeah, much different from the 1990s, you know, Camrys, Civics that you and I are used to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, true. But I, I want to point out that if you catch your wife cheating on you, you automatically win the divorce. Like she's going to be the one who's got to pay the legal fees. You're not going to have to pay any alimony. This story, it, I just, I just think the story has more holes than Swiss cheese. Yeah. And and what's really interesting is that. I know of a different Hiles Sermon illustration story that is that there is actual reason to believe that it's true. Like my mother personally knows the people involved and it was actually true. It is still just such a mystery to me. Why would Hiles need to invent this story out of nowhere? Like, why did he feel like this sermon just needed a murder? To get across, like, my point can't possibly be made without a murder. But, yeah. Like, why would he invent it? He had other stories. Like, I know that he had other stories. But on the other hand, like, for all our other, for all of our hours of research, we can't find a single bit of evidence to back up the story. Like, I don't know what to make of this. I just, I can't see myself believing this story when there's absolutely nothing to back it up. Yeah, I also think that it's like an important thing to point out is that he's telling the story like 40 years ago. So before the time, like if if you just wanted to know something, you look it up on the Internet. Like, I mean, like how it used to be, you used to have to like go to the library or like you would have to call up the Texas Department of Corrections and ask them to send you this information and if they are willing to send you the information, you would have to wait like a week or two to get it back. And then you would have to search through it and look like for a name on sheets and sheets and sheets of paper. 
And if it wasn't there, you'd have to call somebody else up. Like you can't keyword search like we did. There's no database. The only thing that you've got to go off of is whether or not the person who is telling you the information is reliable. And if, yeah, and if you're in the seats of First Baptist Church of Hammond, Jack Hiles is not just like a reliable source, but he is the only reliable source that you can trust. Because who knows, maybe the person who's in charge of giving you the information about the inmate is also the person who is reading the inmate's outgoing mail and also is a devoted anti Christian. So they read the letter saying, oh, it all started when I like when I stopped being a Sunday school teacher and they're like, oh, no, I need to remember this guy's name because he's not trying to be a Sunday <laughs> school teacher. Like, yeah, that's like how deep you have to go on this conspiracy thing to that was a that was a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like that's, you know, that's a, a real thing where you could be like, oh, well, the person who did it was anti-Christian. They're trying to, to hamper mm-hmm. me or they're the devil knows what's going on and they're acting through this person. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. And the only person you and the only person you know the devil isn't acting through is Jack Hiles. Yeah. So you yeah. just got to rely on him. Now, this was such a, a weird emotional journey for me. I grew up constantly in fear of this type of thing happening to me, and I think that goes for a lot of people who grew up IFB. I genuinely thought that if I didn't work as much for as much as possible for the church, that I would have a terrible life. A lot of us believe that if we went against the pastor's wishes or the pastor's recommendation, that we could end up dying in a car crash with our brains being displayed on a pulpit. And a lot of us even believe that our failures or our sins or our lies or our laziness could result in our family members being killed. I remember at one point in my life, um, one of my best friends had really been getting in trouble a lot at school. This person was starting to get the label of a rebellious child, and they were pushing the boundaries of the IFB really strongly. I remember crying and praying that God wouldn't kill me as a lesson to my friend. Like, I truly believe that if this person didn't start obeying God, that God would take one of their best friends away, and I was afraid that that would be me. So I was praying to God to not kill me because of my friend's rebellion. And then, like, I uh, later, you know, as my friend continued to not want to get with the the IFB program of things, I became resigned to the idea that I would eventually die because this person didn't want to obey God. I just accepted the fact that one of these days, like, one of these days I was going to get in a car and I was going to die because this friend wanted to be rebellious. Wow. So all of that to say, I think these stories sparked a very real fear, like a very true sense of terror in those of us who were raised to believe them. I think almost every time someone tells me their story of getting out of the IFB, I hear them say how they felt like lightning was going to strike them the first time they wore non-IFB approved clothing, or that they feared getting in a car wreck for days or weeks after the first time they went to a movie, or that they feared falling over dead or becoming an instant alcoholic the first time they tried alcohol. I think it's really powerful to look into these stories and find out that not only does it not make logical sense that God would harm us because we rebel against the IFB way of life, and that logically, it's astronomically more likely that these stories are coincidence, but also that the stories that scared us so much are probably not even true to begin with. And that that being said, if you have a particular IFB story that you think we should investigate, I would love for you to send it our way. I think I could really enjoy 
doing another one of these investigations in the future, maybe in the far future, when Gavi has had a chance to recover from watching all of that 1970s TV. <laughs> but but I, mean, I we think should, we could do this again sometime. Yeah, we could be like the uh, – we should come up with a name for our detective duo. Uh, make a series – who are we? We're the IFB myth, Mythbusters? No. That's not good. That's not that good. We could be the whole like the Hardy Boys. We're the Holy Boys. That could That's work. Not good I like well. I liked Sadie Lock Holmes. Sadie Lock, but Holmes I can't and- figure out a way to get Watson out of your name. No, I'm Nancy Jew. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> is that appropriate? It. I could. I. I- <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh my god. No, see that's that's the fun thing. It's when you have friends that can say things that you're not allowed to say. If you said that I would have laughed. Just to, I, I I would not have gotten mad at you. You see okay. the, the, Jew <laughs> Jew isn't a slur. It's only a slur if you say it like like mean. Like Jew is just like a noun. I am a Jew. Like if like, I mean it's know, like woman, right? Know, yeah. Like that can be said. No, like that's literally it. It's just like I won't take my theology from a woman. Like, right. It can be said in a way that makes it a slur. I won't take my theology from a Jew. Well, you are, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) No, literally taking it as in taking it away from you. So we're Sadie Locke Holmes and Nancy Jew. Um, I'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) Sadie Locke Holmes and Nancy Jew in the curious case of, uh, of, Paul Sand, I don't know. Um, no, this this was fun. I really do want to do another one. Um, yeah, so, this was fun, and and I want to do. I want to talk more about these IFB myths um, because I think these held a lot of power over us, like those of us who were in the IFB. And I think that this was a really great step for me in in kind of removing the power from this story. Yeah, it's learning that it's most likely just not true. It's like if you could prove that the monster under your bed as a kid actually didn't exist. It's like if someone could prove it to you. And it takes a lot of the fear out of it. So if you have any more of these, email them to us and we might do some more of this later because this was really fun. Yeah. And the email address for that is uh, leavingedenpod at gmail.com. Um, you, the other ways that you can get in touch with us are by social media. Uh, Sadie, uh, what is your social media? My Instagram is at Sadie Carpenter Music. My Twitter is at Hell Yes Sadie. And my TikTok is Sadie Carpenter One. Yes. Um, and the podcast is uh, Leaving Eden Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Leaving Eden Pod on Twitter. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. And until next time, uh, we hope you have a very nice day. Bye-bye.
Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.